0: To help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Danielle Paradis, contributing editor at Canada Land. Welcome back to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news.
1: Hi, Jesse. Nice to see you.
0: Good to have you on. Uh, Today, Danny, we're going to talk about uh, the election. Canadians are as mad as hell, and we're absolutely going to take it anymore. The worst election ever is over, and nobody had any fun, except for us in the media, uh, who I intend to mock. Also, Norm Macdonald died, which sent millions down a norm hole, digging through some, some wonderful old clips and interviews, I did that too, and I found something surprising. We'll talk about that. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to everyone by Elaine Robitaille, Shay Welton, Trevor Lists, Dominic Marque, Neil Spencer, Ben Hall, Marie Stewart, and Fala. My name is Fala. I'm from Mississauga, Ontario. I'm a law student, and I support Canonland because I
1: believe it's our duty as citizens to support and protect Canadian content creators.
0: Scott Sims has 23 votes because we've only got one poll reporting. 23 votes. The conservative Clifford Small, he's got four votes.
1: Canada, your next government will be a liberal minority government. Justin Trudeau, as we already told you, will hang on as prime minister tonight. Boy, oh boy. Danny, wasn't that something? I had some friends over and it was probably the most boring election event we've ever uh, participated in. The only good thing was the snacks.
0: Your problem was that your friends are normal people. If you had just been hanging out with journalists, journalists get so excited about elections. Do you remember Paul Wells was on the show right at the beginning and he was like, he was like a little school kid. He was so giddy. We're having an election. He was so happy about it.
1: Yeah. um, It's, I mean, I think journalists are are maybe happy about elections, but also it's really cool to not like something too much in journalism. So halfway through, I think we saw a switch to like despondency and uh, complaining about elections about nothing elections to nowhere as the New York Times calls it.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, we got to get to that. I think that a bunch of cranks like me were were complaining about the election, but the but the journalists who are covering this, it's like it's showtime, you know, like everybody's been like doing remote journalism for what seems like eons, you're like literally phoning it in 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 their own homes. And now they got to like dust off their suitcases and get on planes and buses and then like finally for one special night all eyes are on us. Everyone's actually paying attention to Canadian journalism. You know, in the CBC they break out their fancy new flying video drone. Did you see this? It was like zooming around the headquarters and taking dives. <laughs> yes. It was like, <laughs> here it is. It's showtime night. And you know, it's, it's contagious. Like our backbench team I think did a terrific job and it's like there's nowhere more fun than a newsroom on election night. They were killing it. I came by. There was pizza involved. It was a gas. Democracy in action. What a bubble I've been in with this shit and how wildly different it is outside of that bubble. And looking at the elections, like, okay, here are the facts, Danny. This was almost the worst election in Canadian history in terms of voter turnout. Mm -hmm. The massive decreases in the number of polling stations, uh, confusion, widespread about where to vote, the lineups that for sure prevented thousands of people from exercising uh, their voting rights. Uh, Luke Savage commented on Twitter that, like, if this had happened under a conservative government and they had ignored Election candidates' recommendations, we would absolutely be hearing about U.S.-style voter suppression, and that would be correct. And as for the results themselves, this seems to be the worst election ever in terms of our electoral system going against, like, thwarting the will of the people. About 68% of Canadians who voted voted against the Liberal Party. Like, that's a landslide. As far as we can tell, that is a historically weak mandate for a party that then goes and, like, wins and forms government. Like, that's fucked up. That is that is not, like, a ringing endorsement of the state of our democracy.
1: So, being Albertan means that the federal election has always been a very strange time. It's not interesting here. Like, there there were a few bright spots with uh, Blake Desjardins, the first two-spirit Métis uh, MP going to Parliament, so everyone was excited about that. But on the whole, it's you know we know which way it's going to go. People are going to vote Conservatives. You could paint a C on a pumpkin and people would elect it here. So it's never very interesting. So I, I kind of I watch from an outsider perspective, and, and even as the results come in, when we were on our Twitter Spaces, I briefly mentioned that it's basically decided before. They're finished counting the votes in Alberta and B.C. So there's always a sense of feeling very disconnected and, (laughs) dare I say, angry on this side of the country uh, when the federal elections are on.
0: I'm going to go ahead and say that this is like a rare instance of like unity across the country with Alberta. Like here's another bit of statistical evidence. This is based on a poll that I just conducted in my own brain everybody <laughs> felt disconnected. Nobody felt good about like, maybe if you got to vote for like a candidate who is the first two spirit, like maybe if there's like uh, if you happen to be in a writing where you had the opportunity to cast your vote in a way that hasn't been possible before. But even there, I feel like you are doing the journalist thing of like, like you're searching for meaning in the meaninglessness, you know, <laughs> like I saw Fatima Asaya doing this. She was like, I'm looking for some good election. news." was like, there was a, a Filipino candidate who won and, and it's been like 20 years since we had one of those. That's good. Right. <laughs> Like, like, what if this was actually about nothing? And uh, here's the analogy, okay? Imagine, Danny, that you're in, like, a bad relationship. You know it's not going to work out with this guy, and it's just a matter of time. I've been in this relationship. <laughs> you can relate. So, okay. So here you are, but there's, like, it's messy. There's lots of plans. It's not the right time, but it, it's not going to work out. But then something much bigger happens. You're taken hostage by terrorists or, or like you're stuck in a hurricane or you're like on a boat in Whitewater Rapids and you're just trying to survive. And then in the middle of that ordeal, he turns to you and he says, we need to talk about this relationship Are we okay? Are things okay between you and I? And you're just like, yes, shut up. We're fine. Like, (laughs) let's beat the terrorists. There's a waterfall up ahead. I don't know. Yes, we're fine. Uh, You know, so like that. Trudeau is our
1: boyfriend in this metaphor.
0: Trudeau, that is correct. That's exactly what just happened.
1: Okay. Um, Well, one, it's a little disturbing that you have polls that you conduct in your head, but I guess that's the privilege of a broadcaster.
0: There's a 2% margin of error, (laughs) by the way.
1: Oh, so it's a projection. Now, see, you get in trouble if you confuse those people from the Strategist podcast. They come and they get mad at you. So you better be careful there. Okay, the thing about Trudeau, like, yes, I I was relating Trudeau and his relationship with indigenous people to like when you have like an ex-boyfriend and you just broke up and you you see each other at the store and he's just like, oh, God. Like, he's really trying not to look at you. That felt like the relationship for most of the election between Trudeau and Indigenous people. Like, how far we've fallen. And, like, 2015, 19, he was coming out in, like, you know, the Canadian tuxedo, jean jackets, meeting people in teepees. Like, you know, he knew how to pander. And now he just, like, he's like, oh, I don't know her.
0: Right, right. It never happened. See, we both have him as some sort of a boyfriend in these analogies. Mm -hmm. It felt strange to me and wildly out of step just the um, – like when you're watching – like like pretending like we're an actual real serious grown-up country and watching the coverage and the, all of our graphics are blinking. And then you see it's like the, the writing projections and there were some – like, like five votes are in in this – you know. I preferred the McLean's coverage. I don't know if you caught this. This was actually, the map. at least they're having fun at McLean's. McLean's had, in contrast with this like blaring, honking, blinking election coverage, they just had like a box of pencil crayons <laughs> and a live stream of somebody just coloring in a map of Canada, the color of the party that won each writing as the writing was called. And it was like an ASMR, just like low key. It's like slow journalism. Like that, that actually is the right mood, perhaps, for election coverage in this country.
1: I switched between CTV and CBC quite a bit in the evening. So I'm really curious. Uh, I think I've seen a few tweets about this. What was your favorite Jerry Butts moment? Oh
0: my God. Just his sort of like pretty much naked derision towards the news media and sometimes specifically towards Rosie Barton and just like at their temerity to kind of question the liberal party. Like he was absolutely still waving the flag for his team and Pretty low energy dude. It was not the most dynamic broadcast. But then I had to ask myself, like, why aren't I watching CTV where Jody Wilson-Ray Bould is? I'm like, that's, that's kind of interesting. What does she have to say about this? But that is kind of the one night where everybody defaults to the CBC.
1: The really, the, I think our, our broadcasting and our panels are just terrible. And they're not terrible just in Canada. It's, it's terrible in the States too. I think a part of it's the format. We're just so insistent that we have to have someone from every political stripe on the panel, everyone has their like 10 minute sound bites. And it, I wonder like, can't we look at another format? Couldn't we do, like, couldn't we have one of these people at a time? Do we have to all have them all on at once? Is it, when did we decide that was the most dynamic way to get TV done?
0: Well, yeah, I think you make a good point about just like the number of people and the idea of like representing each team. But it, like, uh, that's not the right question for me. The right question for me is like, if you're having somebody on TV, they should be serving the viewer. They should be serving the analysis and the discussion. So when Rosie Barton asks Jerry Butts a question, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but essentially it was like, "Look, you know, when it looked like clear that he was going to get a minority government, he was going to win, but win a minority." And I think the question was kind of like you know, how much time does this guy have left after an election like this? Like, this is obviously not the outcome that he wanted to end up exactly where he started. He called the election because he was polling so high. Now everyone's resentful. He used to have the ability to threaten other parties with going to an election. He can't threaten that anymore. He's ending this weaker than where he started. So maybe his days as leader of the party are, are, are limited. Totally legit question. And Jerry Butts is like scoffing and he's just like, yeah, he just won. I don't think that he's like on his way out. The guy just won. And, you know, that's because Jerry Butts serves like his people. Like he doesn't serve the viewer. Like you want to have pundits on who are like, I'm here to explore issues. I'm here to have a conversation and and to deal with these issues. I don't know. At some point we just inherited this American thing. Like the most fun thing to put on TV is putting on people who are going to fight with each other as opposed to try to serve the audience. Mm
1: -hmm. I I guess where I kind of find myself agreeing with Jerry Butts is that Think what Trudeau has survived already. Like he's—I was writing down some some scandals. We of course have SNC Lavalin. We have we we have the last election when he told us he couldn't remember how many times he had been in blackface. Like that's a really messed up thing to say. It, it still is. Um, we had all the broken promises to Indigenous people. So like I guess in the scope of of that where. Most Canadians are not super excited about him. He did have a good night.
0: I don't know. I mean, like, there's the technical fact that there was an election and he's the prime minister, so he won it, uh, which, you know, that ain't nothing. I guess what he won was better he calls the election when he feels like he's strong than letting the other parties um, let the government fail at his weakest moment, you know? So by that metric, this was well played. I'll put it this way. This wasn't like the worst case scenario that could have happened from calling an election, but it's certainly not what he was hoping for. Um, Who won? Well, the CBC has claimed victory, <laughs> like literally uh, CBC News PR today uh, and, and CBC journalists and Rosie Barton, one of them are like tweeting, we won the night based on their ratings. First of all, CBC TV should not be drawing attention to their TV ratings. That's not <laughs> like, okay, what about the other 364 nights of the year? But there's just such a bad look for the CBC in a time of news industry collapse where Public interest groups have repeatedly called for the CBC to stop trying to win, stop trying to compete against dying competitors where we don't have enough news media. And as a public broadcaster should, there is a model by which the CBC becomes a helper, a public broadcaster that helps other news organizations thrive. And yet the CBC maintains a position that they are competitors to independent news, competitors to other commercial news, and declaring, We won! Uh, it's like, yeah, everyone else is like dead, like calm down.
1: They're declaring victory over the corpse of other broadcasters.
0: I mean, except that every other night CTV news wins. Like that is still true.
1: So when you say something like that, are you then tapping into the Rosemary Barton hate, which I see as being defended in the Globe and Mail?
0: Yeah. Like, it's it's so weird to me. I mean, first of all, there's no question that Rosemary Barton is the target of tons of vile misogyny. And yet I'm still allowed to criticize her as a media critic. You know what I mean? I think that those two things—like, John Doyle took the position of, like, in order to shut down the trolls, we have to extol and celebrate her. I think she's a strong journalist. I think she's a great broadcaster— She's a major presence on CBC, a major part of like she's their chief political correspondent. She will be criticized like any other journalist on this program. And you know, like it's fine. Like whenever I criticize her now, there are people who are like, you are a misogynist, sir. And I'm like, nah, I, I don't like that thing she said.
1: Yeah, I, I don't like when things become such polar extremes that you can't say anything. Um, you can't be slightly annoyed by some of the behavior that Rosie displays on TV. I know it came up last night with my group of normal people, friends. Um, Some people weren't fans. I, I don't think they were rampant misogynists. I think they just, they find her to have a slanted perspective in her broadcasting.
0: Well, I'll say this. I do know. And I did clock that like her approach in interviewing can be aggressive and people have been put off by it. But I do think that that is something that would get read differently if she were a man. My responses are not really about her tone or, or like whether she's aggressive enough. Like my, like my biggest criticism of Rosemary Barton is that she shouldn't have sued the conservative party of Canada. Yep. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems – And just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help as the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get ten percent off of your first month at BetterHelp.com/CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com/CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope.
1: It's time for Duly Noted. What do you have? One thing I would like to duly note as an Albertan is that things are a mess here. I'm going to be... Visiting uh, Ontario, visiting Toronto next week. And I don't know if I want to come back. I might be showing up at Canada Land office and like trying to claim refugee status. Um, <laughs> there's right now, I'm, I'm laughing, but I'm laughing out of panic. Um, our COVID situation is horrific. Yeah. yeah. On the 21st, right after the election, Rick McIver was asking Ottawa for immediate help to airlift COVID-19 patients out of the province. There's this, like, the lunatic PPC party is here. There's anti-maskers, there's anti-vaxxers. It is horrifying over here. And um, in the middle of all of it, we have this premier who's so proud who won't admit that he's done anything wrong, except for like very mild, um, admissions that maybe he closed some businesses too early. The knives are out. Uh, even his more moderate cabinet or former cabinet minister, Leela Ahir, said that he should be resigning. It is a mess over here.
0: I'm so sorry. You know, it's a pretty normal day for people to be furious with Jason Kenney. And when he was just like, back to business as usual, most fun summer ever, whatever. It's just kind of like a shrug when people get furious about that. But then it's like, Yeah, no, this is the real world, and that has consequences, and now there's blood on his hands for that fucking stupidity, and uh, I I, I feel for you. Duly noted. I want to duly note that we got to get our shit together when it comes to covering the People's Party of Canada, and by we, I mean uh, the larger media, including us, but, like, you're watching election night, like— nobody seemed to know what the fuck to do. Like Global did this whole like blanking thing. Like they don't exist. You know, like the little icons, like who's got how many seats? No PPC was like, you know, even icon represented, which is a choice at least. Somebody's thought about it, but it's sort of problematic when they go and they win like three times as many votes as the Green Party. So you can pretend that they don't exist or you can do what CBC Radio did, which was just like, they just broadcast Bernier giving his uh, his speech. Like they didn't comment. They didn't interject. It was just like here's like six minutes of national radio airtime for Bernier, unfiltered. Other places like tried to mitigate it and like give them a little bit here, but then even that was weird because the questions were like, you know, to what do you attribute the success of? Like there were questions like that. This is a thing they have tripled their support. Five uh, percent is significant. They have had an impact on like twenty. Uh, seats that probably would have gone to the conservatives without them. So we have got to get our shit together going forward and figure out like, at least have a strategy for this. Like we don't want to platform them. We do want to do our research and figure out who they are and what they stand for and where they're coming from. We can't ignore them because that feeds into it. We need to inform people, but we need to do so critically because I'm, I'm getting like strong whiffs of like American media circa 2015 from the kind of, uh, like stunned and shocked confusion and incoherence when it comes to Canadian media coverage of the People's Party of Canada.
1: Yeah, um, Stephen Zhu did go through each riding um, where the PPC was present. And in every instance, there's an increase of at least a thousand. Sometimes that's an increase of uh, from no votes at all, uh, where there was no candidate, to 3,000 voters. I I teach journalism at McEwen this fall, and the morning after the election I was speaking to some of my students who felt that last night was uh, like a triumph against right-wing populism. And I I try not to crush young people's dreams, but I, I don't think that that's what we're seeing. I think we're actually seeing a slow increase in populism, and it's incredibly dangerous. And thank goodness for the journalists who are out there doing we're keeping track of the far right, alt right, what have you, because this is something, you know, since 2011, it's been steadily increasing and COVID is a perfect opportunity. I totally agree. We have to figure out how to cover this. We have to figure out what's going to make sure that we're clear on how repugnant their messaging is.
0: You don't want to kill the hopes and dreams of young people, but you teach journalism?
1: I mean, they're choosing to join the journalism programme. What do you want me to do about it? Duly noted. Before we go to the break, uh, some really sad news. Today we have lost an absolute comedy legend. Uh, I'm sure you'll have seen this in the news today. Norm Macdonald passed away. He leaves us as one of the all-time great comics, perhaps the single greatest guest in the history of late night
0: television. He was the gold standard, and he will continue to be the gold standard. I think one of the reasons that there was a a struggle in him about who's got it and who doesn't have it is because he was a fucking genius. Right. I think Norm's impact is only gonna grow, and I think his significance in comedy is only going to expand uh, over time. So, Danny, did the uh, passing of Norm Macdonald mean mean much to you? No, I kind of wondered, <laughs> I, I... <laughs> like those guys you just heard, like James Corden, you know Andy Richter, like not even just in being white dudes, but in terms of like their body frames, they kind of resemble me. Like I kind of wondered, what like was this the world? Like like they they kept describing it as like he was a comedian's comedian, but I also wondered like is this middle-aged white guy culture that I'm like, I I definitely was partaking in this. I got caught up in the, in the norm eulogies.
1: So this is where I guess I out myself as perhaps deeply uncool. I, I'm not sure. I really don't even like comedy that much. Like 80% of it is just like jokes about how men and women are different and like people hate their spouses. And so it's something that although like – it, maybe it does skew male. Maybe it is something that appeals particularly to like white men. Perhaps there was this golden age where they're like, I mean, I listen to you, even if you have the same body type as Norm MacDonald, <laughs> but um, I, I can't say that I paid much attention to his career. No.
0: I don't think you outed yourself as uncool. I think you outed yourself as unhuman. You don't like comedy. Dude, like, that's like, I don't like music. I don't like, like, you don't like up comedy. Is that what you, is that what you mean? Or you don't like laughter? You don't like
1: to laugh? Is that... What, what, what I'm saying? I hate laughter. I, I just don't <laughs> feel drawn to listening to comedy, I guess. Like, I love Tig Notaro. Scam goddess. She's funny. Maybe there's just a certain segment that I, that I don't consume, which is kind of like dad comedy, like Norm MacDonald.
0: I think that it's accurate to say that there's like... I got into watching sketch comedy and stand-up comedy when I was like 10, 11, 12... And it like lit up my brain in a way that happens to a lot of guys. It happens to girls too, but certainly I was a comedy geek, and certainly Norm Macdonald was somebody who like, you know, helped form a worldview not just of like comedy, but of like news media because the whole thing of the satire of the news anchor and the way that I approached looking at the news every night as something that could be made fun of in that way. And, uh, yeah, I connected with him when I was really young and just to find out suddenly he's gone, I fell down the norm hole and, you know, watched a lot of clips and watched a lot of old interviews with him and read articles about him. This is boring. This is what like everybody did who is part of this normcore following, but I came across something that is different, I think, than what other people came across in their norm mcdonald deep dive which is i like came across him calling me a motherfucker go on a lot of stuff was coming out at the time that we broke the Gian gameshi stories and i didn't catch all of it i don't think i mean maybe i saw this but like you know blocked it out or something but when Gian gameshi posted his weird self-defense to facebook that he was being targeted by a vicious ex-girlfriend and her collaborators amongst like his other exes and all were being manipulated or something, uh, with a, with a freelance journalist and then CBC fired him. And then, so then when he wrote his response to that, Norm Macdonald replied and he wrote, so sorry for your loss. You're a fantastic broadcaster. Don't let these motherfuckers get you down. Get your ass to the States. That's like he wasn't alone in that, like, you know, like Elizabeth May wrote supportive stuff uh, for Gomeshi at the time. Other people later walked it back when more and more victims came out and it became clear that Gomeshi had very seriously uh, violently abused many, many women. But I don't think Norm Macdonald, as far as I can tell, ever walked back that statement or reflected upon it. And in fact, as I kept digging further, he's actually made a lot of other comments about women who, are, who had accused men of sexual misconduct and assault or about the Me Too movement in general, statements in defense of uh, Louis C.K. And I, I, you know, I am not bringing this up as like a way like, oh, now I need to rethink that I like Norm Macdonald. I felt like it was important to talk about this because the quality of Norm Macdonald that I admire and still admire is he's unsentimental and honest, and I think it's just respectful. If somebody says something, that's what they meant. That That's what the guy did for a living. He said things. So he felt that this was an injustice that was done to Gameshi and that the people who, like, you know, he doesn't know who, he didn't know who I was or care about me, but I guess I'm included in the motherfuckers who are trying to get him down. And that's also part of what he was about.
1: What does it feel like to be kind of third-hand called a motherfucker by someone that you admire?
0: Um, Not great. Criticism, you know, does feel terrible. But I think that, like, and this is sort of like a wider philosophical thing, I believe, which is, like, especially when it comes from somebody who you think is, like, a, a, a truth teller and, you know, an honest person. Okay, so you feel bruised, and then you stop and you consider... Am I a motherfucker <laughs> who's like, <laughs> you know, viciously bringing down an innocent? And then you're like, let me go through my facts again. Let me make let me make damn sure about what I'm doing right here, because I have to be willing to absorb scorn even from people that I admire. And you're like, yeah, no, he's wrong. <laughs> you know, the story is needs to be told. And you know, so I think that there's, uh, you know, there is value even to that. But no, it doesn't. It didn't feel good. It, it doesn't feel good reading it now. That's fair. I made this about me, but like. I think that the the wider thing here, and this was pointed out by others on Twitter, was how does it feel to the many women in comedy who felt harassed by Norm Macdonald or otherwise afflicted by him? And this was a part of his memory that I was not familiar with. And there were worse things said than that, which I'm only not going to get into because they haven't kind of met like a level of journalistic verification. But there are people who obviously had a very different experience of him and I wonder about how it feels for them when he's venerated and, you know, in, in the way that, like, all of the comedy establishment comes together in a way that that is is just like, you know, you're hearing things like this was the gold standard. This was the greatest comic ever. Some people are saying he's the funniest person, you know, and, and that's fine. Those people, like, he was that to people. But I think that those experiences are, should be part of this conversation, too.
1: Yeah. I mean, as someone who has done a lot of reporting and journalism around sexual assault and sexual violence. I have a lot of mixed feelings about this. Uh, since I never really followed Norm closely, it wasn't until I was going to be on shortcuts where I started looking, um, you know, and and understanding some of this problematic legacy that he leaves behind. But on the other side, like I just, uh, since I didn't follow him, it also felt really like shitty of me to be like prepping to be mad at him, Um, like this now dead guy who I just never really cared about one way or the other. And yet, of course, I feel for any potential victims or people who feel they were side railed. Like I know that, that it's hard for women in comedy. It's there's still a lot of need to like break through and be considered funny. Like we're still dealing with like the legacy of like Christopher Hitchens saying we're not funny. And I'm not a really good example of this, I guess, because I hate
0: comedy. Because you hate comedy. You know what? I Like, people are complicated and comedians are complicated. And I do, there's a wider crisis in comedy right now, which is people who I think quite rightly feel like it's their job to stand against or to look at things contrary to how everybody else sees them and try to find what's bullshit. I mean, in many ways, journalists do the same thing, but comedians are, like, supposed to be laser targeted on blowing against the wind. And, you know, it's a hard time to be doing that. And sometimes people are, are, like, in the process of doing their job, are going to be on the wrong side of things. And, you know, whatever kind of, like, room that comedy used to provide as a space where it's okay, where this is a permissible place to say the wrong thing, that space seems to be diminished and... I'm not blind to that. I think that it is important for, for there to be spaces to be wrong. Sometimes that's the only person who's saying the thing that turns out to be right. And that was the case with Norm Macdonald when he was just like, O.J. Simpson is a murderer. It can't be said enough. You know, like when, when like the powers that be are telling you, you can't say that. And he's like, but it's true. So sometimes you're going to get that wrong. Anyhow, I'm sorry uh, that he's dead. And, and remember him as somebody who, who tried to tell the truth. That's shortcuts. Danny, thank you.
1: You're welcome.
0: Danny, I want to remind people that there's a way to support Canada Land uh, that's so super easy, which is uh, if you're using an Apple device, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. And it's like, it's literally the quickest way to ever become a supporter and to get premium ad free Canada Land and bonus stuff. So check that out if that sounds good to you.
1: And it's cheap and amazing. Like what you have to pay for what you get, we do great stuff here. I happen
0: to agree. I can be emailed at, at canadaland.com and I read everything that you send. We're on Twitter at Canadaland. Danny, where can people find you?
1: You can find me on Twitter at Danny Paradis, P A R A D I S, or you can occasionally find me on the Canadaland website. Our website,
0: edited by Danny Paradis, uh, where you'll find a lot of her writing, is canadaland.com. This episode is produced by Kevin Sexton with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, and if you want to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please support us wherever you like, but perhaps right on Apple Podcasts.